Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. This morning I'm going to be speaking specifically as it relates to those who are white and those who are black. I know for many of you this morning, this is going to be a first. It's going to be a first because I had to ask the question, how many people in this congregation have ever heard from an evangelical pulpit a message specifically on race relations? I've been a Christian 27 years. I have listened to, read, or sat beneath people for thousands of messages. I've never heard one message ever on the issue of racism. The silence is deafening, isn't it? You know, I had a lesson early in my life, though, on racism I'd like to share with you. It was at a time that uh, I think helped me get a different perspective. I have uh, shared with you many times uh, different issues and situations with my my own immediate family, and I want you to know that although there were some things that my mom and dad did wrong, uh, there were some things, some very powerful things that they did right. Uh, My mom and dad both worked full-time, and because they worked full-time, it was necessary that they find someone to uh, stay with their three boys after school, and many times on weekends. There were several people that they uh, called on to help fulfill that particular role in caring for these three boys, and one in particular was a young black teenager named James Jones. Now James, as I remember, had no father at home. Uh, His mom lived in very impoverished conditions. She had a number of children, and my dad employed him on many of occasions to come and care for us. And so after school and sometimes in different evenings, he would babysit us. And the evening that stands out in my mind on reflection was an evening in which uh, maybe I was nine or ten, I can't exactly remember, but us three boys got into a humongous fight. And I know that's hard for some of you to imagine. But uh, we were tearing the house down. And James had to enter into that uh, particular fray trying to sort things out. And that's an impossible task when you have three siblings all pointing at one another. But he entered into that and he was trying to bring some justice and fairness into this a particularly intense situation, and I got sideways with James. And as he began to employ his authority, I got madder and madder, and finally my temper flared, and I remember looking him square in the eyes and saying, you're a nigger. That's who you are. You don't have any right to say that to me. And James was the gentlest of souls, but his eyes got small And he grabbed me and threw me over his knee and gave me a spanking I will never forget. (laughs) And when he finished crying and unrepentant, wait a minute now, that's not the... I tell you, it's hard to be vulnerable up here. (laughs) Golly, I'm not even finished with the story and you're cheering for him. (laughs) But I remember I got up crying and unrepentant and I said, when my dad comes home, I'm going to tell him what you did. 
And I can only imagine what a young, black, impoverished teenager thought for those next couple hours, thinking what I might be able to convince my dad of and what might happen to him. And so my dad came home, and I immediately ran up to him, and I gave him the best case I knew how to convince him that James was wrong in what he did to me. And in the midst of that, James stepped in and he said, Mr. Lewis, your son called me a nigger. See, it was 1958 or 59. I didn't think that was any big deal. And the next thing I knew, my dad grabbed my arm and lifted me up off the floor and onto his knee and gave me a second spanking. <laughs> I will never, ever forget. With the words ringing in my ear, don't you ever say that again, ever. Remember him saying that. In the years that followed, there came a great relationship and friendship between my mom and dad and James Jones. My dad helped him get a, a job at a very popular clothing store in town. James later went on and with my dad's help, got the first college degree in his family. And I remember at my dad's death, we, we were there at the funeral home, I remember this arm on the back of my shoulder, I turned around and it was James. And he gave me and my mom the warmest of hugs. But what occurred between my mom and James is what warmed my heart. It was like family. And as they talked with one another, my mom bragged about James and the job that he had now, and that all three of his children, college educated, had wonderful jobs around the country. It was real obvious to me that there was this special relationship between my mom and formerly my dad and James. And James had a wonderful, loving relationship with him. It was the best lesson on race relations any young man could ever receive. It's wonderful. Now I share that because to me that experience comes closer to fulfilling the dream that Martin Luther King had in mind when on that hot August day in 1963 in Washington, he shared his dream. And I think in reading that speech over this week, it was a dream much higher than integration. I don't think that's really what was in his mind at the bottom. It wasn't integration, it was a dream of reconciliation. Listen, he said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Brotherhood. That's not integration. That's reconciliation. Brotherhood is a concept that goes far beyond civil rights and integrated schools and minority representation. Brotherhood is something that's much higher than those things as important as they may be. Brotherhood is something deeply spiritual, intensely relational, and life-affirming that desires to confirm upon another human being their godlike dignity, regardless of their color. I think that's what King's dream was all about. Today we have integration without brotherhood. We have race relations without racial reconciliation. And I want you to know it's dangerous ground we're on today. And we all feel that and know that. And I can state the obvious, I think, for all of us, and that is, as I watch our world today, race relations are deteriorating. The prophecy in the Kerner Report, a 600-page document that was produced by the National Advisory Commission appointed by Lyndon B. Johnson in 1968, made a startling prophecy that is as true now as ever before. 
Its conclusion read this after 600 pages of information. It said and concluded, quote, our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white. And a house divided cannot stand. We're integrated, but we're increasingly segregated. And the result has been an increasingly volatile black rage that whites just simply don't understand. And an increasingly impatient white bewilderment that blacks simply don't understand. More and more we're finding ourselves isolated by what I call the tragedy of mistrust. A mistrust that undercuts and sabotages every attempt at reconciliation and actually ends up exacerbating the problem. I want you to know that there have been a number of times over these last 15 years here in Little Rock where I've attempted to try to build some kind of racial bridge with members of the black community. And quite honestly, I want you to know I've had my feelings hurt a lot. Because I find that I just don't understand. And what I thought was an honest attempt has been met with superstition, uh, suspicion, anger, and even cynicism. And I've walked away frustrated and sometimes, quite frankly, embarrassed and mad that I even tried. I probably felt a little bit like JFK when he went to Berlin and he wanted to you know, identify with the Berliners. And uh, you remember that famous speech when he ended his speech with, Eich bin ein Berliner, and you thought everybody was cheering. But after being in Europe this summer, I found out that a lot of people really were laughing. Because when he said that in his meager attempt to identify, he said, I am not a Berliner. He united the, the direct article. He said, I am the Berliner. And it happened that the Berliner at that time was a big giant jelly roll. <laughs> and people laughed. And I'm sure he felt embarrassed and frustrated because he said, I'm the big jelly roll. <laughs> now, was he trying to communicate? Was he trying to identify? Was he trying to feel their pain? Sure he was. But he came across as somebody silly and foolish. And you know, many times, any attempts between whites and blacks end up that same way. And my small attempts, I want you to know, at trying to build some bridges have left me that way with a feeling of more misunderstanding than understanding and a sense of frustration than fulfillment. See, it's called the tragedy of mistrust. Married couples know that. They know what happens when every statement, even statements of reconciliation, are met with a cynical eye that constantly perverts and reinterprets every effort with the wounds and abuses of the past, which leads you to finally come to a conclusion, so what's the use? You feel that? Troubled marriages know that path well, but races can divorce over that too. It's a tragedy of mistrust. So where's the evangelical church? As I said, the silence from evangelical pulpits suggests really two awful possibilities. Listen to what they are. First is, is that we really just don't care. And the second is, that it's just not important to us. Those are both tragic indictments. Which I think every Christian, every evangelical has to sit down and ponder for a while. Is that true of us? You know, the truth is, the most segregated hour in America is on Sunday morning. Which leads to the question, 
Is the evangelical church racist? It's a hard question, isn't it? You don't even like to ask it. I don't. Well, perhaps no, in that the evangelical church does not actively promote segregation. It doesn't actively do that. You don't ever hear us say that. But maybe yes, in that it does not actively promote reconciliation. Maybe it's a passive racism. Too often black evangelicals hear that kind of double message from their white brothers and sisters in Christ. Kay James, who is the executive vice president of the Family Research Council. Most of you know about the Family Research Council with Gary Bauer. Kay James is the vice president of that organization. She's a highly influential woman, and she's black. Listen to what her story was of her experience in Washington. She said, I became involved in a women's Bible study that met once a week at a white church. And one of the highlights of the year was a trip to Myrtle Beach with the families of the women in our study. All year long, references to the annual family beach trip were dropped into conversation. I heard so many stories about the fun they had together that I was really looking forward to going. But we were never invited. As summer drew near, I overheard women making arrangements for shared beach houses, but the conversation would die down whenever I came near. The group left for the beach without us, and I was crushed. I never felt so betrayed and rejected. Eventually, embarrassment and hurt died down enough for me to ask one day in the Bible study why Charles and I weren't included in the beach trip. An uncomfortable silence fell upon the room. Well, Kay once said, we just felt that, well, you know, there aren't, there aren't very many black people at Bertle Beach. And we just thought you would be uncomfortable. And then I thought, they were concerned about us. Didn't they see this irony? It took all my courage to say something. And I did. I said, well, I guess I thought that if we wouldn't be accepted at a certain vacation spot, that you would choose another one rather than leave us out. Nothing more was ever said about it. Didn't they see the irony, she asked? But I wonder, is it irony? Or is it a passive, aggressive racism? That's the question. You know, right now in the look towards the Olympics in Atlanta, they're having a discussion over the flag, state of Georgia. And, and in my, my cursory, superficial response, I say, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a historical flag. But you see, the very fact that blacks have to bring it up is what makes them so mad. The very fact that we can't see it is what angers them so deeply. If I could put it in another context, if a car ran over your son and killed you, and kill, ran over your son and killed him, and you went through tremendous agony and grief over his death because of that car, and you were his friend, would you go out and buy that car and drive it around just because it was your right? Even though every time he saw it, it would bring an unbelievable flashback. Would you do that to him? Do you see the association there? Scripture, though, helps us here. Because Scripture has some wonderful perspectives for getting our arms around what I think 
is an immense and most difficult issue. And by the way, without these kind of perspectives, which are so refreshing to me as a person, we are being, we are being shaped by all kinds of internal fears and misperceptions and misconceptions and, yes, prejudices that will lead us to all kinds of, what I believe, exaggerated responses. Some of that sometimes can be humorous. There were four nurses here in Little Rock that went to Las Vegas to a nursing convention. And uh, they were out to have a good time. And uh, during the time, one of the girls began to win all kinds of money at this convention. And the other three, they lost all their money. So about 10 o'clock, they all retired up to the, their room on the sixth floor. But this one wanted to stay because she was so convinced, hey, I'm going to keep making money. But they warned her, listen, if you make a lot, watch out. You don't know who's all around here. And being from Little Rock in a big city, she wasn't real sure about that, but she kept playing. About midnight, she had made $800. But then, with the casino clearing out, she was a little nervous because very few people were left. And so she walked and got in the elevator, and as she stepped on this elevator, four black men stepped on with her. Well, she was alarmed and began to think, man, maybe this is a prophecy about to come true. And suddenly, one of the black men turned to her and said, hit the foe. And so she hit the floor, began to start screaming and crying. Don't beat me. Don't rob me. Here, I've got $800. You can have it. Please take it. My friends, they live on the sixth floor. They're in room 625. They have money and they'll give it to you too. Just don't hurt me. About that time, it came to the fourth floor and the four black men got off. Well, the next day, there was a ring on the doorbell and these nurses opened the door and there was a steward with a silver tray with 12 roses on it with $100 bills wrapped around each one of these roses. And there was a note attached to the bouquet and it said, thank you for last night. I haven't laughed that hard in years. <laughs> Signed, Eddie Murphy. See, it's, a, it's amazing how your perspective can totally change, but how your misperception can totally misread a situation. I want to give you three perspectives, one a beginning perspective, one a present one, and then a final one on this issue of race relations. First, a beginning perspective, and you might turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And as you do so, let me tell you that Paul is in, in Acts 17, one of the most cosmopolitan cities of the ancient world, Athens. Yet more than probably any ancient city was known as a center of ethnic, cultural, and religious pluralism. There were races and religions of every kind in Athens. And so Paul is speaking into a very multicultural situation. And look what he says in verse 24 as he stands on Mars Hill. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all, all people, life and breath and all things. And He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Paul 
gives two kind of radical concepts here for these people. The first is, in the midst of all these innumerable temples and shrines and altars and statues, so much so that a Roman satirist said that in Athens it's easier to find a god than a man. Into the midst of that kind of society, he said, there is only one God. Only one. He's Lord of all. He gives life to all things. Secondly, he made another radical statement. He said in the midst of these diverse cultures and races, he says that all of them spring, look at verse 26, from one singular source. Thus we are all brothers and sisters of the same family. See, he's speaking of homogeneity of the human race here. When he says, and he made from one every nation, every race, every people, and by the way, that is even confirmed by secular sources. Time magazine a year ago reported that anthropologists now believe that human beings, from their perspective, began from a single place. A literal Eve, Time magazine reported. Ashley Montague, the physical anthropologist, has said, and I'm quoting, all varieties of man belong to the same species and have the same remote ancestry. Look at verse 26 where it says, one some manuscripts, some later Greek manuscripts, say one blood. And isn't it interesting that though the color of man is varied, the blood which gives life to the whole human race is singular. It's the same. It's not different. You don't quite cut one and get green blood and another blue and another red. When Jesus Christ bled to death, the blood that was spilled out is the very same blood that runs through every race in every nation, in every tribe. It's all the same. So what does this homogeneity the human race proclaim? It says, if our beginning is the same, if our source is the same, if our makeup is the same, then all mankind, regardless of color, is the same. And worthy of dignity, worthy of equality, and worthy for us to give them their worth and respect. The Constitution of our United States that we talked about last time reflects this very spiritual perspective when it says all men are created equal. You see, the old song, or the song that I used to sing even as a little kid in public school, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight, that's not just great theology. That's great sociology. That's great history. That's what that is. Secondly, there is a present perspective in Ephesians chapter 2. One that's real helpful to me as Paul speaks, though it's not an easy passage to walk through. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. Paul writes, therefore, now he's writing to Gentiles, because see, he's moved out now into the ancient world on his missionary journeys. But he says in chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, you hear the pride in that? Which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now I want you to know Paul is not siding with the Jews here. 
But he is making a statement about their relationship with God. And when I read that statement here, I'm reminded of a very important truth. It doesn't have to do with races so much it has to do with cultures, and it's this. All cultures are not equal. All cultures are not equal. People, yes. Races, yes. Cultures, no. That's what he's speaking to. And I know that's blasphemy in a very politically correct world today where everything is relative. But all cultures are not equal. And in verses 11 and 12, we see that as Paul speaks as a Jew by birth, a Roman by citizenship, and a Greek by education. His judgment is not based upon varied cultural comparisons between people or the differences in achievements between cultures here or the attainment one culture has in being elevated over another culture. All that can be true from time to time. His distinction here between cultures, as he points out to these Gentiles, is one of a distinction of morality and spirituality. He said, you've done great things, you Gentiles. You've brought Roman peace to the whole world. You've built great cities and all that. But you have no hope. And you're cut off from God. And you're not equal to those who know Him. That's where you were. Proverbs 14.34 puts it succinctly. It says, righteousness exalts a people, but sin is a disgrace to any race. To any race. Do you hear that? Red and yellow, black and white. Sin is a disgrace in His sight. That's what it's saying here. Some cultures are not equal to other cultures morally or spiritually. And that's what counts. Regardless of the culture and architectural and military and political achievements like in Roman culture, Rome had become a godless culture. Most, the average Roman at this point in time didn't believe in any of the gods. The only person he believed in in the first century was himself. And for the next 400 years, historians will then document the ever-increasing moral inferiority of a culture we look back on and think was really grand. But they were morally inferior. And in time, they physically disappeared. You see, what separates one culture over the other is not its rich cultural distinctives, but its high or low moral realities. That's what separates culture. Righteousness elevates a culture. Sin relegates it to inferior status. The point is, it's not race. That's what Paul's saying. It's righteousness. And righteousness, not color, is where all races can find reconciliation. That's where Jesus comes in now in verse 13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought together by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity or this hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinance that ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. In verse 14, if you'll notice, Paul recounts a major racial conflict 
It was the one between Jew and Gentiles. But the process he's going to follow here transcends Jew and Gentile. I want you to know this. This would be a great passage to look at further. Because you can put, instead of Jew and Gentile, you could put black and white. You could put Croat and Serb. You could put Irish Catholic and Irish Protestant. Japanese and Chinese. Iranian and Iraqi. Or if you're just a generalist, just put us and them. See, you can put any of those in this passage and get the same results. Because see, what is at the heart of all this, what exudes, what drips out as poison in this passage is the pride and the arrogance and the immaturity and the ignorance that creates an us-them relationship with the world in order to make me, the us, feel good about myself. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, there are three phrases that alter that kind of perspective. I want you to circle them in your Bibles. Look at verse 14. Just circle dividing wall. In verse 15, you might circle one new man. And then in verse 16, the phrase reconcile and one body. I'm going to look at each one of those for a moment because they contain great truths. The phrase dividing wall in verse 14 reminds us of the literal wall that surrounded the Jewish temple. Because inside for the actual worship of God, it was Jews only. And there was a wall around this temple that said to Gentiles, stay out. And if you enter past this place, this wall will kill you. That's what we'll do. In fact, in 1871, archaeologists who were digging around the old temple ruins found the very stone that was marked with this warning. But this wall, though it literal, became a symbolic wall in the psyche of the Jews. Because they saw that wall as a symbol, now listen, of their religious and moral superiority over everyone else. We are God's chosen. You're not. We are special. You aren't. We have the law. You don't. We're of Abraham. You're not. That self-righteous heir, without anything being said, that just incensed the anger of all other peoples, especially this group that's all-encompassing that they called Gentiles against them. Religious superiority. But you see, here came Jesus. And Jesus' life and death ended that self-righteous snobbery for those who would listen. Even for those who didn't, it was a tremendous accusation. He broke down this wall of religious superiority. How did he do that? He did it by his impeccable life. Because as he lived an impeccable life among those people who thought they were morally superior, what he reflected back to them in his perfectness was their imperfectness. What he reflected back into them was that they were not ones who were keeping the law. They were breaking the law. They were hypocrites. And it was shameful the way they were living and they couldn't take it. And so they had him executed. That's what he revealed to them. The Gentiles already knew that about themselves. And his necessary death on a cross made a statement not to just Jews but to Jews and Gentiles that all had fallen woefully short of God's standard. There was no reason to put up a wall and think you were better when God had to die for everyone. And it showed them all that they were under the condemnation of hell without a Savior. 
And so it bursts their pride. And now to find peace with God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, an Iraqi, a Catholic Irish, an Argentine, whoever you are, now you have to admit not your specialness. That's not, that's not what God's waiting to hear about how special you are as a Jew or as a Roman with all my power or as a Greek with all my intellect. What you had to admit was your commonness with all mankind that you're a sinner. And all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and we're all in the same stew. I believe what continues to anger blacks today is not all the good things that have happened to provide them opportunities, but it's something not which is said, but what's not said by white people. It's a white dividing wall that unspoken just simply says, we're special, you're not. We're better, you aren't. We're superior, you're not. We don't, we don't say it, we just exude it at different points in time. But are we really? You see, it starts with us. Are we really? Is there anyone in this audience who could look into the face of Jesus Christ and keep his or her pride? That you could feel good? That you measure up? To come out feeling superior over others? All we have to do is look at Saul who later became Paul, a prideful, arrogant, self-righteous Jew who epitomized racial superiority in the earlier years of his life. But when he had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ, what followed was not arrogance. What followed was he became a servant to the very people he thought he was better than. And at the end of his life, called himself in reflection the chief of sinners. That's what happens when a person meets Jesus Christ. That's the radical transformation that goes on in his or her heart. And if it hasn't gone on, there's an incomplete work still to do in your life. I want you to notice also in verse 15 the phrase that in himself he might make the two into one new man. See, he's talking about a synthesis of people here. A third race, I call it. And that's a phrase I borrow from a first century pagan who, as he looked at the early church, that's what he called early Christians. A third race. Gentiles didn't become Jews. Jews didn't become Gentiles. They became together something altogether new in the first century. They became a third race. In Christ, they transcended their racial distinctives and their cultural differences. It was called Christianity. It was common ground where they could relate. Now that's important to know because today in Christ, blacks don't have to become whites. And whites don't have to become black. And here's why. Because neither race is good enough for peace. We're not good enough. We have to transcend over all that. And though there is rich heritages on both sides and distinctives and all that, it will never be resolved in focusing on our differences with dividing walls. That pride has got to come down and we have to transcend to a new plane called Christianity where we meet on common ground with common values in Christ 
Jesus. It's a transcendent culture that the church is all about, not a racial culture. Notice in verse 15, it says that we're remade into this one new man. And after being remade, we begin to be reconciled to one another, verse 16, in a network called One Body, which is a clear reference to the church. I want you to know, if you were to take your Bibles and read all through the New Testament, you would get a definition that the church is a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic community that finds its unity in none of those things. It finds its unity in its common identity in Christ. Now let me just review those few, few verses there just so you can see the progression here. The present perspective as it regards race relations. It moves in verse 14 from the destruction of our false pride of superiority over others, which are dividing walls between us, to verse 15 where we are remade into new men and women, a third race that possesses a common identity in Christ. And having possessed that common identity, we move to verse 16 where in a place called the church, we can relate with one another and in Christ have a reconciliation that's lived out in a very practical manner. That's what he's calling for here. And here's what I'm calling for today. That should be the driving force of the evangelical church. That ideal. Not passive status quoness. And that brings us to a final perspective in Revelation chapter 5. And here John is looking forward to the end of time, when life as we know it will be brought to an end. And it's just good to know what it's going to feel like at the end of time. Look at chapter 5. By the way, this particular vision, different forms of it, is given six other times in the book of Revelation. And it's just something to ponder. We sung about it just a moment ago. Look at verse 2. John says, And I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. Now look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang this song, a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and did purchase for God with the blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom, a community, and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. What makes the difference in this final picture? See, because I want to compare our picture with this picture. What makes the difference in this final picture? Is it a superior race we see here? 
a superior group of people's intellect that gathered them here? Or their culture? You know what you see here? Especially in verse 9, you see the multiracial grace of God, don't you? That's what you see. Drawing people who He loved, who He was willing to purchase with His own life because He valued them so much, all coming together as one community. That's the ideal. Now when I look at the past and the present and this future, how it all ends up, it's hard for me. It really, it is hard for me to wonder how any Christian who names the name of Christ could be racist in their actions. How they could think of themselves, how in the world could they think of themselves as better than somebody? Worth more than somebody? Higher than somebody? In light of these biblical perspectives. I tell you, it makes no sense. And it certainly has no biblical support. There's only one synonym for racism. It's sin. That's the synonym for racism. Well, let me suggest as we finish three simple steps to what I think would help us as this brave new church in reconciling race relations in the community in which we live. The first would be this. Some of us in this audience I have made deeply uncomfortable. And you need to confess. I don't. You do. You need to think about these things in light of your life. And you need to say, God, though I've had a certain kind of upbringing and I've had certain kind of experiences, it's not experience that's truth. It's not my past and what my mom and dad thought that's truth. It's the Bible that's truth. And help me step into the stream of your perspectives so that I might be surprised at the end by the good outcome it brings. Confession might be a necessary step here this morning. Secondly, I would call on all of us as an action point to pray. <laughs> Just simply to pray that not only our church, but the evangelical community will wake up and take an active role in racial reconciliation. It's up to us. Passivity won't work. I mean, Billy Graham even said, and I'm quoting him, racial and ethnic hostility is the chief social problem in our world today. Now, there's a guy that's got a world perspective because he's been around. He says, of all people, Christians should be the most active in reaching out to those of other races instead of settling for the status quo. We just need to pray that that would happen. Then thirdly, we need to commit to acts of reconciliation. And there are many ways that I believe that we can join in this community with our black brothers and sisters. And we have some in our church, but very few. But we need to reach out and join in some cooperative efforts. We, we all know about STEP. I don't need to rehearse that. That has some opportunities for the inner city. But I want to throw out to you as a dream, my own dream, how about some new common cause groups in the future that could cre be created? Maybe to staff an inner city clinic. Maybe to build homes. Maybe to make affordable housing. Maybe to provide jobs with the lucrative businesses many of us possess with those who we can join with. There are a number of cooperative efforts we can join with blacks in our own community. There are a number of projects that are always going on. I'm excited that this spring in mid-April the Missions Commission 
is going to be teaming up with the Central High Neighborhood Association to do a revitalization project. And we're going to need a lot of people's help from this group to do that as we repaint and, and uh, refurbish parts of that community that they want to take pride in. But they need some help. And they can do it themselves, but it'd be great to come alongside and help. Personally, I am praying for a sister church, a black sister church and a black pastor to be, be a friend with that we can begin to share on a number of levels with this congregation right here in this city. The reason I say that is because all the acts we could take of reconciliation that do something will never be as important as you becoming something. In fact, I would say that the best act of reconciliation that one can bring in this day, in this hour, that, ha that holds more healing and more power and more promise than any other is for you to come to a place where you first dealt with it in your own heart and then to sincerely seek out someone in the black community and just simply become their friend. You see, at the heart of reconciliation is friendship. It's not a handout. It's not doing things for them. It's just that you consider them of such worth and such dignity that you're drawn to befriend them. A loyal friendship. The kind of friendship that my mom and dad modeled for me with a young black man named James Jones. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.